Hello and welcome to the Baby Giants Investing Podcast. Join us as we chat about the weird and wild world of small cap investing, all while searching for the precious few fast-growing businesses that have a shot at becoming industry giants. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, we're live. I'm sick, but the show must go on. We've got Claude and Andrew here who will uh, hopefully carry us <laughs> carry us this week. All right, let's start with some good news. This week? Huh? When you make, you always carry I carry you here. fools every goddamn week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what have we got? Picking a random one out of the good news headlines. Some deaf children in China can hear after gene treatment. So after mm. gene therapy, yeah, you can hear a mother and dance to the music. There okay. you go. That's cool. There you go, some positive. Yep, doctors used a, a virus to add replacement DNL cells. So it's kind of, it's basically the CRISPR type technology that we've been hearing so much about has been used okay. in, in live patients now. The word some there seems like it stands out. <laughs> what was the word? <laughs> out of 4 million some. kids. Some. <laughs> Others, um, others some, are critically yeah, uh, ill. Became giant superheroes. <laughs> right. No, no, no. Cool. All right. You guys got any other good news? There's plenty of bad news out there at the moment. A lot so of bad probably, news. We should have prepared uh, more good news at the moment. No, I, I don't. I'm sure there's some good stuff out there, but I don't I right. don't have any at hand. All right. Well, a topic we picked up last week and didn't really get into was Alcidian's capital raise. We It was just breaking. We didn't have any other details when we tried to, I think we tried to tackle it last week. But yeah, interest in your gents' thoughts as two people who have followed this one for a while. What do you think about the capital well, raise? Well, I, def- I was definitely the Pollyanna-ish one saying, don't be so cynical, Claude. <laughs> They're probably making a really smart acquisition. I, I was hopeful, though. <laughs> I thought I was hoping that it'd be like some little add-on acquisition or something instead of a yeah. A, so I still own shares in Alcidian, and I haven't, you know, given up on the value of that business. But you know, obviously, I'm not. I'm not buying anymore right now, and. This is uh, a big hit to the thesis, basically, because I own shares in this thinking that it had $14 million cash. And, you know, they basically still saying that they're going to be cash flow positive this year. They were supposed to be a bit positive last year, right? They missed mm-hmm. that. and But they didn't burn too much cash. And then they were supposed to have, basically, they were supposed to be cash flow positive by now. Like when I bought shares, that was the the thing they were aiming for and saying that they they could do or at least if you if you think that a bit is a, a vague proxy for cash flow there and so oh yeah like they've missed that and now in this quarter you know they had like very high outflow unusually high outflow for them and so yeah now they've raised five million dollars to to bolster the balance sheet basically for the dreaded working capital needs and mm. you know essentially what seems to have happened here is that the company has hired in advance of contracts that it expected were actually going to land last year in FY 2023. Now, basically what they're saying is contracts have been like delayed by like a year or whatever. So they're now expected sometime in FY 2024, I guess maybe. I think that the strategic blunder here has been to hide, to like grow up your cost base like this, to scale it up so much ahead of contracts that you're so short of. Like I get that you may need those people, but it's the, it's a timing issue. You need to bring them on closer to when the actual contract's starting and not be paying all these salaries for people that you've got for future contracts that you haven't won. And now you're just like waiting around for a year so far to even find out if you've won or not. So the whole time you're paying for these people that you need to serve this bigger customer base that you don't yet have, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I expect. I would not expect that to happen, like basically to the degree that it has with our city and, and charitably, charitably, which I do not agree with, but charitably, it's because, you know, it's so hard to hire these people that we just have to like, you know, hire them one year or more before they're even required so that we know. Like, I don't believe that. That seems to be kind of the vibe. That's sort of the vibe that's come across. There hasn't been any kind of moment of, whoops, you know, we've obviously made a strategic error here. We're spending beyond our needs. Instead of just getting that in line, we've like, grown our employee base way ahead of you know now delayed contracts there doesn't seem to be any recognition that that is a a, not a great way to to run a business and that is uh you know that's an indelible mark on this management team from now on yeah i will i'll take the more charitable interpretation just not just for just for the sake of talking it through because i think you've got some really valid points there i mean we've seen a lot of this i think in small cap land and it's sort of the 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 tricky part here is teasing apart what is what you might call management incompetence or recklessness versus shit happens you know for, for use the technical term in the sense that 
you're this tiny little ASX micro cap company. You're dealing with, well, with the NHS, these massive bureaucratic behemoths that are so slow moving. And they tell you, yes, we're going to take it and we're going to need it now. Great. Okay. Oh my gosh, we need to hire. We hire, we hire, we hire. Oh, actually, no, we have we we need to delay because like there's a chain of 50 people between me, the person you're speaking to, and the key decision makers who are now making decisions based on other political factors and a whole range of other things. And it's just moved back. And it's sort of like, sorry, we don't really care about what you told the market or what you prepared for, but shit's just changed. And that's that's how it is. Now, like that just happens, right? I mean, I, I don't, and again, I don't want to extend the charitable interpretation too far here, but that's basically what I, Pointero was saying when we spoke to them recently as well. We were told, we need you, we're doing it, and then everything got delayed. Now, I can almost empathize as a business owner in thinking, what would have I done under that scenario with my hand on heart, best intentions, trying to be an effective steward of capital? We've got people telling us they want our products. We've got everything done, you know, except the green light to actually start. But I know it's going to start. I'm given all of these assurances it's going to start. Like this happens all the time in business. And so there's that, right? So there's maybe that's 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 sort of what's happened. Just a thought bubble on that. I, I do actually want to just say, like, I think that Alcidian's actually not as bad as Pointera because to be fair to Alcidian, I think that they have been like reasonable in the sense that they've always said that this is their plan, you know, like now after the kind of plans failed, I'm kind of like, oh, it's actually what really gets me isn't even the fact that this plan that they had of hiring ahead of these contracts that they were going to win the NHS contracts. It doesn't even annoy me that they that plan, plan failed. What annoys me is that the, the capital raising at a low price at almost, you know, five-year lows or whatever it is, that yep. should be seen as a moment for what have we done wrong and how can we avoid this in the future kind of introspection. Mm. At least a sentence. Just give us a sentence. You know, in hindsight, we should have taken into account the likelihood of delays in the NHS and perhaps slowed hiring or something like I've I refuse to believe and do not believe that this has been managed optimally and it's certainly not optimally with the benefit of hindsight yeah and we yeah. are that's where we are now we're yeah. at the benefit of hindsight so show shareholders that you have achieved the benefit of hindsight that's what's missing mate that is yeah what's no missing. I, I hear I hear you man and I don't I don't I don't I don't really disagree too much I'm, I'm just I'm just trying to trying to put the other angle out there I think and which is my second point really here is you have what could have should have happened and what didn't but then you find yourself okay well for whatever you know here I that was then this is now here I am right now is this a incompetent management team who doesn't deserve my trust or is this a otherwise competent capable team that erred Okay, to your point. Okay, absolutely, we erred. But other than that, the long-term opportunity remains in play. We've still got a great product. We've still got a good opportunity. When I look five years out, do I still see a cash flow future that was more or less in line? And I, I feel as though- If I didn't off- think that they were still like honest and competent, I would definitely sell my shares. But there's still, it's not that, it's not really a dichotomy, is it, when you're thinking about that kind of thing? That's the point that I'm making. Like, whilst this situation doesn't necessarily say incompetent, it hardly reeks of competence. And also, like, the lack of iterating on the strategy when the strategy has failed, that's what gets my go. And that's a little niggle there, but that is the worst part about it. And that's, for me, why I'm sanguine about this business now, and it really has lowered my view of the stock. Like, it's quite possible that I have overestimated the competence of and the ability for this company to execute. And that is something about my competence. I need to look at my own decisions now and say, look, well, this was not part of the thesis. I did not see them having an $8 million cash burn quarter and then having to raise $5 million at, like, five-year lows. Like, I did not foresee that happening. And if I had... I would have waited till now to buy shares rather than buy and, and take a hit. So, yeah, I mean, I- How could have you known? How could have you known though? I knew it was a risk. Is, let, let, let's go back. Let's go back a few months. And like how as an investor could have you foreseen and handicapped that predicament effectively? I don't know if you could have, right? I, it, it feels like in hindsight, I feel like the bet was like at some point it's pretty obvious that like 
the NHS and the UK government in general is not the most competent on time kind of No, no, thing. indeed. Yeah. And I think that that was probably the trick that I missed. That was probably what I was... I, I, I was inadvertently betting on competence to timelines from uh, dysfunctional UK bureaucracy. That was, in my opinion, something that I... That's not a bet that I, I'm so enthusiastic now. Having, having made that bet and lost it, mm. it is not... Something I would recommend. Maybe not. Maybe not. Could be thirty cents in three years' time. Yeah. So that's the other thing. Look, I mean, the offsetting thing is like if you actually get these slow to move government contracts, the 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 pain that our city is going through trying to bid for these and get these gives you a hint at the kind of pain someone else would have to go through in X amount of years to get it. And that's why it's interesting, right? Yeah. These big bureaucracies are great on once you're on once you're through, right? It's sort of like we're just we're here forever now. (laughs) You can never get rid of us. We're gonna put the up every year, you know. I can't disagree with their strategy of going for these contracts. It's we're literally just talking about the execution, and and, and yeah, this is a problematic execution. You know, yeah. the, the, this is not ideal. I just mean it in a more sorry, Matt. I'll let you come in. I, I I just mean it in a more broad sense. I think as an investor, a small cap, large cap, any kind of investor, you you'll regularly face situations where management makes suboptimal decisions. And that the tricky part is- I mean, we all do every day. We all right? do, right? We all do. So I think that the investor that looks for per- perfection and demands perfection just never makes a damn investment and just continually sells out every time there's a speed bump. So I think the real question here is, is this one of those things <laughs> which, which otherwise doesn't detract from a an attractive opportunity in a capable team, but yes, okay, we could have, should have, would have done done it better. That to me is the is the you know it's the it's the for me once shame on you, for me twice shame on me kind of thing. Where I've made big mistakes in the past is is having a management team that has erred and then say, oh, but it's all better from now. And I continue, I want that message and I take that message and then they err and then they err and then they err again. That's a that's a fundamental critical mistake, right? As opposed to the oh, we had a bit of a speed bump was really something i mean yes in hindsight we could have done it better but other you know you really are missing a trick if you're going to sell out on 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 this news at this point in time given now what the price is given that the opportunity potentially remains unchanged that's that is that is the super tricky part where i will be very critical of i think is the communication and handling of the capital raising itself was very bad. It was it was, it was an, a nonsensical amount of money, a ridiculous discount. I mean, way too big a discount. Maybe that's what it took in this funding environment to get the instos across the line. I don't know, but it was it was rushed. It's it reeked of desperation. That's what scared the market more than anything else. And I think what that's was a nonsensical that, amount of money. Too too small. Do you think, Andrew? If they were yeah, I, I, like oh for God's sake, like you you've taken this massive hit. Like at least go for ten mil, right? Like I, I feel as though I mean I guess there's added dilution at, at that kind of point, but it's like you are either hyper confident that things will turn around very quickly now, or you'll be doing this again in twelve months' time. In which case. You're going to completely undermine trust and lose whatever shred of credibility. Do you think they generally act like owners? And I guess you know, like often when you see professional management teams, they're more willing to dilute or just do these ongoing capital raises versus people who have like an ownership mindset. But then you Mm. you look like Kate Quirk has like I think maybe three million dollars worth of shares or something. So you'd think that that should instill like a bit of an ownership mindset. I'm just curious if you what do you think? And also three million that like once upon a time was a lot more than three million, right? Mm. She had like a subsizable holding and could have been like, all right, see you guys. Like, you know, it's 2021, everything's booming. Like she could probably be have more money if she'd been like, good luck, next person, adios. And just like, you know, slot them all out over the next year or whatever. She probably would have got 20 cents a share or, or more, even even dumping on the market. As general rule, like they, the our city and directors were not uh, doing that. They were not cashing in on the high share price so it makes you think that they genuinely do you know i do think they genuinely like it's this is the thing if i thought they were dishonest and pulling a a shifty i'd be out of there but you know i actually think that it's all just you know it's not a bad it's there's no uh there's no suggestion that they've done something unethical it's just it didn't work out like the strategy did not work in this occasion and we should probably tweak that strategy and be mindful of its current status of failure in terms of you need to align these expenses with the cost growth more because you're close. You just need to shift it so that you're like, you're steady at, at break even, and then you don't have these disasters. So look, it's disappointing. I feel uh, chastened my own error 
another one to add to the embarrassing failure pile. Obviously, look, time could vindicate us and heal all runes, but the state of play right now is bad. You're, hol- you're holding, right? Let- yeah, I'm holding. Like, we have to, like, balance this a little chat about valuation because we don't often talk about valuation, which is... Fair enough, because I don't know how much people want to listen to us reading out numbers off a spreadsheet. I'll read out my DCF. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But look, we've seen takeovers at this low end of the market, right? And I think we're about to talk about one next. These guys have $35 million of revenue or more, quite possibly. And their current market cap is under $95 million. So we're talking very loosely less than three times revenue. Now, just, you know, thumb sucking it, even if you made a 10% margin or something like that, then you end up on a sort of reasonable profit P ratio and 10% margin is kind of what you can do selling capital equipment. You can probably do, if you're like not trying to push for growth, you can probably do higher than 10% margin on a software company as well. Maybe even 15, 20, even without being top of the line. So yeah, you don't, I would have thought that, you know, someone's looking at this and be like, could just go in there, rip out all the costs and and I'd have a, a decent software company with all these sticky contracts on, you know, 15, 20 times earnings. Mm, that'd be disappointing though, right? In a way. I mean, anything that gets me out of the hole, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, that's actually a very good transition because we have seen a, a company we've talked about a few times, Whisper, I think we are talking about just last week, weren't we? Has had a takeover offer, which seems to, Soprano Design has made an all cash offer for Whisper shares at 48 cents per share, which was a 92% premium to a recently completed capital raise and a 60% premium to the prior closing price. Quite an interesting one. I'll just highlight a couple of things. they making it all cash. And I just it's a funny one to go and read. Go and read the announcement that came out because, sorry, just the way that they sell it, I, I kind of thought was interesting. So Whisper shareholders will see, receive a simple and attractive cash exit from their investment. The key attractions of the offer include a substantial premium, cash certainty. At this point, shareholders will no longer be exposed to the inherent risks of owning <laughs> shares in a listed company, which I just <laughs> I mean, you'll stop being like punched in the face every day as the share price falls as you have been for the last couple of years. Quite, quite clearly targeted to a shareholder base that's been quite beaten up, right? From what's been happening the, with the share price. That is the lamest <laughs> reason ever. It's sort of like you precious little darlings. You don't you don't know what you're exposing yourself to, but all right, we'll fix it for you and we'll just turn it into cash. So you but don't it's just marketing. I just kind of like that they got someone who does sales to write it, right? Like it's clearly, like it's, it's already implied by saying a cash offer. You're selling. Like it doesn't matter, like the volatility yeah. is irrelevant to you. It wouldn't matter if it stayed listed, but it's just like, yep. it's just clearly targeting the pain point, right? Of the, of the person that you're trying to get to make it. That's decision. true. That's true. That you've, you know, you've been beaten up by this thing. Yeah. Let me take this pain away. You won't have, you know, all cash. It's all gone. Just forget about it and get out of the hole. <laughs> as, I, yeah. as God was talking about. Yeah. What do you reckon? Did you ever look at the takeover offer, Andrew? Uh, no, not closely as yet. We did speak to Jenny Pilcher, the CFO, earlier this year. I think we spoke about it on the pod at, at the time. I think it's probably what Claude was hinting at before. In general, you just you've you've got a lot of potentially savvy buyers out there that are just making hay while the sun shines. And it, maybe it's I don't know whisper well enough, but maybe it is a sign of there is value in this space. It's just for those that are brave enough to reach out there and take it. I mean, did Whisper have some hands on it? Absolutely, it did. I mean, it's, it shares down 90% since their peak. There was all kinds of challenges with with transitioning to profitability. The same old, same old, you know, that old the old chestnut that we've been talking about for a year now, right? And it's a question of, are the assets any good and can we run it better than the current team? Or we got some embedded advantages that we can squeeze the lemon harder than than they can. And I think that, I think in a lot of cases, that's, that's what, keeps me coming back for more in this kind of space is that there've definitely been blunders. There's definitely, you know, as we were speaking about with Alcidian and, and Pointera, but the heart of it, there's some pretty interesting products that are out there. And I think it could be seen as a negative in the grand scheme of things. If, if they just get taken private and, you know, you, 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 you feel good because you sell out a little premium to the last traded price, but at a big discount as to potentially what you bought it at and what it might even truly be worth. So I guess he's running uh, Soprano Design. I don't know if you guys saw this one. <laughs> I did. It? I did. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So no. Mark Br- Brian, is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah. So the guy who we were talking about him, like, was it last week or week L- before? Yeah, like, last week. Last week. You're like, man, I just got to get him whatever he gets into. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So interrated research. Did well under his <laughs> under his leadership. Appen or did very well. It came down. It came down most of that way under uh, yeah, his leadership uh, yeah, as well. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Like the ups are consistent, and they've been big ups. So you know, I, I, really I like the. Choice, I, I, like I think he's got the magic touch, mate. Like <laughs> I, I like the. 
I like the odds for this soprano design company. I see, I see them, you know, getting a evaluation on the Whisper revenues that are much better than what Whisper gets right now. I guess there's a world where you could invest, co-invest with it. Like if they tried to make a takeover and didn't get to whatever they're required to take it private, like if they only got 80% or something, I guess it's foreseeable that you could buy shares now and, and have a Mark Brayen run Whisper. It's like you get right? 20% of the register and block it and you're like, yeah, Marky, let's get it up there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Headed for four dollars fifty, mate. Let's do it. You got yeah. it. You got one more in you, mate. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What do you think of the takeover off overall, Clint? Aside from that, uh, I mean, like, so I mean, half my problem with Whisper was like that I didn't back the management strategy kind of thing, and I don't like. I think that I maybe on Ausbiz recently, and I wanted to bring up Whisper because they'd done this capital raising, right? They'd done that capital raise that had been hanging over their heads for ages. I even wrote an article being like, why Whispers need to go raise capital again. It was one of those classic situations where the company's like, we don't need to raise capital. And you're like, oh, yes, you do. And it's just nothing but bad news until they actually bolster that balance sheet. And that's exactly what they did. So I kind of, I went on Osbys and said, look, this ain't so bad now. And it's sort of one of those situations where I'm actually really looking forward to like retiring from writing about stocks so much and going back to my like ways of being much more scrappy and higher turnover in my portfolio, because it's like, oh, you could, there's a, a number of companies that you could sort of put a little bit of a speculative buy on just to in the hope of a takeover kind of situation. And I think this was one of those after the cap raise. We saw a similar thing with Damstra, you know, after they finally crossed over that line to positive cash flow, then they get the offer. And it's people in some ways are like timing these takeover offers for like just after what they think is probably like the darkest days, which is smart, right? And I think you know, the biggest takeaway right now, this is, I've never seen an environment like this in ASX tech stocks. I was looking at some stats actually from S&P Cap IQ. You know, there's an unusual large number of like Australian IT companies getting taken over, especially by overseas companies. And then also, especially if they have overseas revenue, like if you've got USD revenue, the AUD is going down relative to the USD, but you've got USD revenue and your share price is in the doldrums. Now, Whisper didn't have USD revenues, so it's neither here nor there, but like Downstreet, I think probably does have a fair chunk or some anyway. And, you know, I think IntelliHR had, well, at least it was in UK anyway. But the point is, all of these little takeovers, I think the biggest takeaway that I'm learning from this is, funnily enough, you know, you definitely do need to sell these loss-making companies. Once the heat comes out of the market and they're also not on a path to sustainable break-even, their prices are going so low that even when you're getting a takeover offer at like 100% higher, you're still well, well below where you could have sold once you just saw the writing on the wall, basically, in most occasions. So that's the big takeaway for me. It's like long-term investing, yes, but long-term investing when you can't see a path to sustainability without raising more capital, for me, you know, only at the cheapest of multiples, certainly, certainly not a situation that I would genuinely like. And that's how I've gotten wrecked on our city in as well. So there's all the more reason, you know, that is, luckily, I don't have many of these companies that aren't already at break even, but where those risks where I have taken those risks, failure is punished very badly. What do you reckon, Andrew? Is it worth worth taking a punt on? Or? <laughs> on Whisper? Oh, just, I guess, what Claude's talking about, like these unprofitable companies. And like, you've kind of well, got Andrew has a few. Where are you? <laughs> with, with, like, not too many. Like, you got some deep value in there as well, mate. Uh, it's so nice. Yeah, but it's, it's yeah, got a great it's, personality. It's, it's there's, <laughs> yeah, it's oh, there are some dogs in there. Yeah, I, I feel as though I, when I really stand back, I just feel as though we are all paying the price for an era of free and easy money and that everyone played the game the rational way it needed to be played in that environment. And the error was in not recognizing, not that it would come to an end, because inevitably it has to come to an end, like mathematically, but that, that it would as soon as it did, without motions to really like be able to stand on, on your own two feet. And as I've said, and I'm repeating myself because I pretty much say it every week, but I feel as though you you know when you speak to management teams that they've gotten the message, right? They're at least they're at least pretending that they've found religion now. And they're all saying the same thing, right? They're all saying Yes, cash flow positive because the market has just screamed that in their ear. And I think more than a few will make that transition. It won't be as clean. It won't be as fast as I think the market would like. But to me, I just, I know this probably sounds like idiotically simple, but I feel as though as long as you've actually got a J 
genuine product or service in there that creates value for its customers. As long as management really genuinely has understood that the new reality that we find ourselves in from, from the capital funding standpoint, that now is precisely the wrong point to sell out. Now, I, I'm, I might be really just stupidly burying my head in the sand here at this point. It's not that, I guess, if you were I going- I basically do agree. This is the point when we're getting a whole bunch of takeovers is probably a good sign that, you know, it is pretty- it's the not point, really the point to sell you know, was a year ago, right? Like it's it's sort of more, like or yeah, or more and, and that's sort of and that I, that's where I get angry at myself was being too relaxed on some of these valuations, was being too believing of how quickly and radically we are gonna switch to to, to cash flow break even and, and sustainability and all of that. And that, that's where I'm angry at myself. But when I, I try look, whether I'm kidding myself, I'm probably kidding myself, but I when I try to be objective with myself, I sort of look and go, okay, well, you can't do anything about that. That was then, this is now again. Here are these companies that, yes, yes, they made mistakes, like undeniably, but like capitulating at this point just feels like the wrong point. The exception being is the ones that genuinely will not make the transition. The ones that genuinely have a product that is all fluff and really not doing anything of creating any value, you know, then, and there are plenty of those ones that are out there. But if that's not the case, I kind of feel as like, well, you know, the horse is bolted at this, at this point, it's kind of like, what else are you going to do? Yes. Go, go and go and fly towards quality. But as we've talked about before, you name me a small cap that has transitioned to cash flow break even, viability, has sustained its revenue growth, remains attractive as ever, and is trading at an attractive price. I mean, they don't, you don't get that. It's kind of like, well, yeah, I'll t- I'll take the, the lower risk proposition, more attractive business that's d- demonstrably shown that it can do all these things, but there's no value there. Well, I, I would say the value is is much harder to be found there. So you're sort of forced into the area where it's sort of like, well, I'm going to go into this sort of murkier, uglier area, but at least there's value there, potentially really good value. Am I wrong? What do you reckon, Claude? I'm not wading massively into it because I don't really know how long. Like, but yes, I do agree that as I'm saying, it's like it would be a high risk strategy would be to invest in a number of these revenue generating but loss making companies that are now trading at you know three or four times revenue or something like that. Yeah. Because generally speaking, if their revenue is quite recurring, a company. Please tell me if I'm wrong, Matt, or any any listeners. But like generally speaking, if you're a recurring revenue company, software, you're capable of decent margins. You're on three or four times revenue. Quite possible that you could be that that company could be run at a decent profit if it does have. Yeah, decent revenue. And it's just quite possible that the loss making is, is partly a choice based on a growth orientation. Yeah, I think that's fair. I guess the thing we've talked about it before, I don't know, you agree on this, Claude, is like, which of them are actually going to be profitable and which will have to keep investing in sales and marketing aggressively because they're not that high quality business. And I kind exactly. of think in this environment, like, it's not like all your competitors are splashing money anymore. So, you know, mm. like some of the stings should have come out of the cost of acquisition for, you know, some of that stuff. So, you, you know, that should be pushing you more towards profit, even if you didn't do anything to a degree. You could just stop spending on marketing as much and you should be getting more return. So yeah, I think that's still a question for some of them, but um, yeah, generally I think that's fair. Like you should be able to cut costs together. But that's the, like, like, cause we're, we're sort of speaking hypothetically here, but, but the ones that are the loss making ones that have been beaten down on funding concerns and the rest of it, if for those that do make the transition and do sustain revenue growth, you will see, I suspect pretty significant re-rates. Yeah. Yeah. What are the interesting ones that come to mind? Like, not necessarily ones that I own. Well, I won't, I won't name ones I own, but like just in terms of that list, I think the com- kind of company we're talking about here is perhaps something like High Pages Group. You know, it's like an internet, whatever. Like, it got a bit hyped up because it was like, you know, an internet and it has like a marketplace kind of element to it. You know, that thing's come down from like $4 to 77 cents. And, I think the story is, you know, heading to cash flow break even FY 2024. I have something like Campify, another one that I've, you know, followed just for its interesting dynamics with mm-hmm. the like marketplace for camper vans. I think a similar story, I'm not actually across when they're expecting to be sustainable. I don't know if you guys are, but, you know, I feel like from looking at their progress, like it could be something they could achieve in maybe without raising capital and also be a decent business along the way. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they've come down as much as high pages, but I think they're probably like down half since their peak as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a few during that bubble that I just think we weren't differentiating quality of the businesses. We kind of like a lot of people saw SaaS or they saw Marketplace and they just put all of them on the same thing. And like something like Airtask is another one. Airtask just has a really big problem with revenue leakage. And they started, you know, they recently... 
bounced up from some of their lows. But they just have a big problem with it because you hire someone to do a little handyman task and then you pay them cash the next time or you just don't pay them their fee at least, like airtask the fee. And so, yeah, that and High Pages has some problems with adverse selection as in that good tradies have heaps of business and typically don't need to go looking for work. Oh, that's such a great point. The worst tradies do need to constantly look for work. My dad was a tradie, so I'm kind of familiar with it. Like he would never have to look for work really, but if, you know, unless there was like a recession or something, then everyone kind of has to. But yeah, I think that that's the, I think those are, there's just, those business models are very different from like an Airbnb, right? Which has, a, you know, is also a marketplace, but has a lot of different characteristics to it. So yeah, I think that those things, those are the things to differentiate. And I, I guess a kind of a bugbear, I thought about writing something about this, is just like, we got a bit too focused on the, the profitability inflection point and yep. the whole point of that inflection point is there's supposed to be a lot of operating leverage afterwards yes like it, it makes a big difference mm. if there's Preach. a business <laughs> business which has the characteristics where after you tip past it you get this huge profit rush but a lot of businesses aren't like that like most businesses aren't actually like that and that break-even point doesn't actually make very much difference it makes a small difference because you go for like default you know, losing money to default pot, making money. But mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. It, after you tip past that point for most businesses, there's not this huge soar in earnings because your costs, you have a lot of variable costs with it as well. And your, your business just isn't fundamentally structured that way. So I think that that, and so you often see them tip past and then go back down and tip past and go back down. That, that's yeah, it's like, of, are you going to get solid margin growth, I guess, is another exactly. way of phrasing what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. And, exactly and, then, and when, when that actually does happen to an extreme degree, it's rare. It's rare. It does yeah. happen. Yeah. And that it can probably happen to a modest degree more often, though. Yeah, I, yeah. I totally did, Matt. You're you're so nailing it. I mean, that's exactly what I did with so many. I was just sort of like, yeah, they're bleeding cash now, but I can see in a few years, not only do they pass that point, but they continue to like just surge past that point, and you get you 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 sustain double digit revenue growth and just basically see no, see no increasing fixed costs. Like, yeah. you, know, you 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 go mad with your spreadsheet, and then as a like, this thing's worth a gazillion dollars, <laughs> yeah. you know. And it's just in hindsight, it was there are so many well. There are examples of that when it happens, and it is a thing of beauty. But it's sort of like, yeah, it's the exception to the rule. You just, yeah, exactly. You just got to know the business model really well. And I think we also, it's also trickier for us in a way because we get these like three monthly snapshots with money losing companies typically in the quarterly cash burn. Mm. And there's so much noise in a in a cash flow statement from lumpy timing, the payments, and blah 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 that you can have these like false points where it looks like yep. they're oh they're about to be profitable, and then you know they just go up and down like you know they a yep. little bit of profit, and then they have to spend some more money, and maybe they reason they had that profit is because they didn't hire anyone for six months you know and now they have to catch up and yeah anyway i think that's uh that's one of the traps should we move on we actually had a couple of questions so just read this one from rory congrats on the milestone this is a couple of episodes ago i think the 100th episode i can't believe live files are still alive i got burnt by that one quite badly i know it's not a small cap but could you talk about bapcor given the big hit they took recently so i think they were down about 18 percent a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I don't know if you guys looked at BAP Corridor recently, had any thoughts on that one? I haven't looked for a long time. The big change, I guess, well, for me, the thesis, you know, back when I used to own it was very tied to the leadership. Daryl Lobotomy has kind of like acted like a founder, just a really great leader, I thought. Mm-hmm. Very kind of man of the people, so good at going out to all the warehouses, but also very strategic and had a background in M&A, so kind of a core part of that growth. It looks like the latest results, people were expecting to be very resilient in the kind of economic slowdown, and they proved themselves to be just somewhat resilient. So they've gone from double-digit growth the last couple of years to single-digit growth, and I think that was probably enough to to throw the shares back down. But yeah. And also initially, I think when you owned it, Matt, it was much more focused on parts, right? But then it sort of diversified out from that. And that was probably the more resilient bit. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So auto parts for trade repairs, I think are very resilient because if you're going to, you know, people run their cars longer. That was always the theory. During a recession, people stop buying new cars as much and run them longer. And so therefore they, you know, need to repair them. And when they repair them, this is trade repairs. So it's not them doing it at home in their driveway was their core business. It was like, you go to the shop and they need to repair a part. And what do you do? You don't leave your car broken in the shop. Usually 90, 95% of people, you just pay what it costs. And they um, had some pretty good margins. That's, I think, a very, that's the business that when people model BAPCOR on like how other businesses in the US did, that 
like thrived throughout the GFC and, and uh, some of them have become some of the greatest success stories on the US market, frankly, just by buying back stock. It's that part of the business really primarily that delivered most of the returns. And so, yeah, then since then they've expanded into more retail, so more like competing with like super cheap auto with auto barn, et cetera, which isn't, isn't the same, doesn't have the same dynamics. You can, there's a lot more discretionary spend, I think there, because people can choose whether to chuck a spoiler on the back of their car or whatever, whatever else you do when you're just deciding to do things to your car. Yeah, so some of that, that probably adds to it. And I, I just wonder, I don't know if it's, if the leadership changes, quite a bit of turmoil there, whether they've lost some of their edge, because efficiency matters massively in these, they also have to be very well run. Like it's not a, it is a business that can have moats, but it's like you also have to keep working at that type of business. You can't have a, you can't have a ham sandwich running it as Buffett. I would like to say finding a business a ham sandwich could run. I don't think it's a ham sandwich business. Feels like a, another example of like, gosh, it just happens all the time where there's a business that has a really cool little business and they have to like expand vertically or horizontal or just They're expand. Kind of try and catapult into something else. Catapult into, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you could, yeah, you like could say. <laughs> yeah. Claude missed it. <laughs> and it just, it happens all the time. And it's just like, what is, I would, I think it just must come down to eat ego more than anything else like what why you can be much bigger you can have a much bigger market capitalization you can be in a better part of the index you can have more meetings with important fund managers and brokers and the rest of it but you've done nothing to create extra value for shareholders and you've just worsened your business as opposed to you know something that just remains relatively small but just gushes cash like no tomorrow and you know pay it out pay it out dude if you've got no if you've got nothing better to do with it and i mean better like objectively confidently better than pay it out but it's just it's too easy not to and it's too appealing not to hope springs eternal and it's just it is it is on the obituary of not the obituary is a bit harsh but it is certainly in the footnotes of so many companies that otherwise would have just been fantastic mm. i hate i hate it now the more i think about it, it's just like stick to your knitting you know like i just there is no reason whatsoever to make an acquisition unless it is so insanely dirt cheap or it strategically strengthens your existing operations. Just don't do it. Otherwise, don't do it. What do you think? It just empire building? Do you think it, it is? And I would, I would probably lay the blame on the insider middleman snouts in the trough industry who are there just trying to make deals happen because I make money on the deal. I don't make money on the value that is created out of this kind of stuff. And I think a lot of the time they just the well-meaning management teams who are, off, especially you think of the young founder leader. Who sort of transit? built a business, transitioned to the to the market. All of a sudden, you're having meetings with people that you never had before. You're not really sure how the game is played, and they're telling you that you could now be running a company that is five times larger. And look how great! And I mean, none of these presentations are, are not sexy. They're all wow! Look what will happen. But statistically, they just they so rarely work out. I, so again, it's not a conspiracy here. It's just following the self interest of and the incentives of of players. And as I say, that these finance people, investment bankers, have a lot to answer for. I mean, no, they don't. They're making out just fine. They're doing just well for themselves, but. I think management teams and shareholders at large should be much more skeptical of what they're selling because objectively what they're selling has not worked out more often than not. Yeah, makes sense. Stay, the way, stay away from my business as investment bankers and, <laughs> and, and, and managers, you know, be very skeptical with what yeah, they are Yeah, I don't know. Selling. I think you're giving managers, you're probably giving them a bit too much of a pass because I think a lot of management teams, there's a lot of, like they benefit a lot from growing, from expanding the business's size, right? Like more salaries, you know, they get to hire yep. a team, more prestige. Like that's much better for them to be running a billion dollar business that has low returns on capital than a oh, yeah. 100 million one that's really I'm in the bad. ASX 100 yeah. that is that is so yeah, yeah. much better when <laughs> I rock up to the yacht club or wherever these people go like it is so much better to say that than I am a micro cap stock that trades you know yeah. 10 grand worth of shares the chairman's today. lounge yacht club or whatever it is yeah exactly it's probably you a whole yacht club we don't know about you probably get a free yacht at a certain point <laughs> from Qantas alright one more question this one through from Ben Sayers great episode guys just on the trend of increasing government spending on things such as cyber security Security. High tech could be a direct beneficiary of this theme, given most of their revenue comes from ICT contracting and job placements with Australian government. Worth a look, in my opinion. Just curious if you guys had ever looked at high tech or had any thoughts on that one. I, I'll tell you, I looked at it like in 2013 and it was so, so desperately crashed out then. And I did like some article and I the most prospective micro caps I could, could find. I think it was like under $20 million or something like that. And boy, oh boy have some of the stocks on that list gone up like absolute rockets and high tech amongst the best performing of those. It's so like these 40, kind of 40, 40x since 
huge. It would have been a huge winner. And I had it right there sitting in front of me and I was identifying it as as one of the more prospective ones. I'm pretty sure I bought some absolutely crummy stocks off that list as well. So yeah, done. And I guess at that stage, it had, you know, looked like, yeah, it wasn't in, in great financial health that it had become unprofitable when revenue dropped away with hiring or whatever. And yeah, has been a much more steady grower since then. So the only thing that I would be cautious about regarding these guys right now is if you look at Australian Bureau of Statistics job vacancies, that's coming down massively off a a humongous peak that we had. So the highest in the data series was May 22. Since then, if anything, the last data point sees an acceleration of the drop. So to me, I think think that now I don't know by the way it could be it could well be that IT holds up better having said that even just even just saying if you look at the proportion of businesses reporting vacancies by industry and you look at that as a percentage then it has definitely IT has definitely gone through its own you know peak and and coming down as well so overall I would say that they have had an extremely favorable backdrop recently that's my main point that I wish to make I'm not really poo-pooing the idea or anything I'm just saying that's something that you'd want to keep in mind what, what do you guys think uh, I need to yeah. have a closer look at it <laughs> I, I I've got to tell you I've I've always been a little bit cautious of service orient people businesses you know it's just that it's it's that they are actually really wonderful businesses when there's a there's a strong tailwind but they can be very tough businesses when when the wind leaves your sails but wow pretty decent history of of earnings growth really super high return on equities again what you see with these kinds of businesses and then i could take your point claude except that the the, actually offering you a 5% fully franked yield and a P of 15, there's not like a lot of growth expectation in that. And they just came off, uh, what was it? Ninth consecutive year of double digit revenue growth. They just increased their NPAT by 23% year over year. I mean, I, I guess I from a structural industry standpoint, I, I'm pretty bullish on just the need for IT people in general. I mean, it's just the entire global economy is they just like they are so critically important for it and, and and good quality people are always be in demand so i feel as though this is something that looks very interesting if and i don't I haven't done the work to know what what the answer is you, you have to have a pretty competent management team for these kinds of businesses because things you can overextend yourself and get yourself into real trouble very quickly with these kinds of businesses but if they know what they're doing and they they seem to it doesn't seem that expensive seems yeah cheap. i had owned this one before like a few years back it was just on that kind of very cheap kind of like you know long history of growth thing i agree with what you say benefits from a tailwind and can turn but yeah basically so they provide you know it workers to government primarily government needs contractors ict it workers to come in that i think can be a quite interesting business i guess one just one other thought that came to mind claude pointed out you know like the cycle is turning generally in employment i also just wonder if there's any chance to get caught up in what the government's moves are against contracting and consulting generally because government has been I don't know what you'd say, caught with like wasting vast amounts of money on consultants. And I think a lot of that more is more targeted to the big four, but you do see some orders coming out at different government levels to stop using consultants as much and, and contractors potentially. So you could potentially see that turned off. I, I'm not sure if that's happening currently, but that'd just be something I'd watch over the next like, six to 12 months, see if that starts happening. And yeah, I think generally there's the, the cycle turns at a certain point potentially that you have to watch. But yeah, otherwise I think it's a business that you know can and should exist and could keep kind of edging out market share is if it's operated well. I think services business is all about how well it's operated. It's about culture being maintained. They can be, as you say, really great businesses. You just just have to watch for all those soft qualitative things. Mm. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, I'm hoping Ben will write another article for Rich Life on high tech. So there you go. Let's, let, let's see if he does. That'll be good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe just to wrap up, you mentioned if you had any thoughts, Claude, on the if there's turning. There's, I guess, the only other commentary coming out is like, is the is the recession finally appearing? I think you shared a chat with like a pickup in uh, unemployment or whatever, a decline in vacancies. I don't know if you had any then wanted to riff on that. Yeah, or. exactly. Yeah, no, I'd be keen to just generally talk about macro, just touching on it, see what you guys are thinking. I have a specific question, but I guess the general thing that you're alluding to, Matt is that if we check in on, I guess, the economy and everything, you know, what's happened is we've seen interest rates go up a lot in both America and Australia. We've seen markets generally stagnate and be weaker. And we're seeing, uh, you know, we have seen recently bond yields continue to to kick up, basically. So they sort of stabilized for a while, I think it's fair to say. And now there's been a bit 
more increases there. And at the same time, we're sort of seeing inflation. I think, you know, a year ago, we've been discussing, it's like, what do we think this inflation curve looks like? And I remember you've said on multiple chats, Matt, when we talked about this like a year ago or more, is like, what we could get is we could get inflation comes down off the heady peaks. And then it sticks around or then it even bounces back up a little bit or something like that and i think we're either in a bounce back up or a sticks around kind of scenario is basically what we're seeing that's the reality we are sort of living in or whatever so that does make one sort of remain more in cash of course because you can get a quite safe risk-free rate it doesn't completely protect you against inflation but it protects you substantially against inflation at, at no risk to your principal. And of course, that puts you in a stronger position to take opportunities if if we do go into a recession, for example, which I think, I don't think anyone is saying, oh, we're definitely out of the woods yet, right? In terms of the potential for a recession to be what ends up the inflationary period. What do you guys think about that? Yes, yeah, so I think that I think that you know waves of inflation is something that people, people are too focused on the short term. I think also something you had called out from early on, Claude, is just how much COVID changed the labor market. One is like the number of people with long COVID, et cetera, just out of the labor market. And I think tied to that is also how many people had been staying on, particularly basically boomers who had been working past retirement age, who just decided to stop. Like some of them got sick and some of them, I think, like there's a big shift in society, right? Like look at how much support for sustainability and decarbonization happened. Like technically that's not related to the pandemic, but we had everyone isolated for like a year, just stopped and thought about a lot of stuff with their lives, right? Like people move states, people like everyone wants to work from home, like just a big re-evaluation. I think a lot of people also just re-evaluated, do I want to keep working now that I'm past retirement age? Like it interrupts exactly. your behavior enough that we, I think we've had a permanent shift. And you can see that in any of the stats, like there's just that, particularly that segment hasn't returned. And those that segment, the boomers hadn't really, they were often skilled, particularly in trades that ha- we hadn't been replacing for because we pushed everyone into university and didn't have trades as much. What were you going to say, Cliff? And also they often had assets that YOLO'd. Right, yep. and they were yeah, thinking yeah, exactly. of retiring. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point as well. And refinance their houses if they well, they probably don't have mortgages, but a lot of people refinance during that time. But yeah, assets that go up. A lot of a lot of reasons just to go, okay, I'm done. I'm stepping out. I've, I've, yeah. Like a lot of people, if you're in a trade, particularly if you're, like it's easy for us, anyone who just does an office job to think about like, oh, we should increase the retirement age. But if you've worked in like a hard job, particularly in America where there's like, they, you work a lot harder, right? Like have two weeks holiday a year or something. You're just like worn out by the time you're like late 60s. And a lot of those people have been keeping going on like pain meds or whatever, and they've just decided to stop. So all that, all that skill has kind of left the labor force. And that's created this, I think, inflationary dynamic where if you're skilled, particularly in a lot of stuff that we hadn't been prioritizing before truck drivers like you know anything anything manual like a skilled task these are still skilled tasks but that we don't have the pipeline to replenish them i think that's kind of created this persistent dynamic to inflation and that's part of what they're butting up against that was exactly what i wanted to get your opinion on thanks mate because yeah that's the question i've been asking is how i will i wonder it's hard to get perfect stats on on how this has affected the the labor force by the way because you have a few different moving parts but and they're also different in different places but yeah generally speaking i see this you know some people call it the great retirement or whatever but i see this thing that has influenced the situation and you see that in the numbers because even though they have mass Massively expanded the uh, cost of living through inflation. The economy doesn't seem to be breaking just yet because people who want to work can get work more like continually quite easily, basically at the moment. So unemployment rates do remain low, even though we're seeing some weakness in the leading indicators, like say around hiring or hours worked in all jobs. So And boomers with savings now get a return, right? Like if you're a boomer with whatever it is, say that you had a million dollars in total savings, not a lot of them would in America, but now you're getting, you know, whatever it is, 50 grand a year, you know, like of income. Or if you have half Yeah, right. And you don't have to take risk. Yeah, no. You don't have to take risk for that either. So if you happen to own your house and not have debt Mm -hmm. and have a, a cash kitty, then in the last year or so, you know, the amount of money you're getting on that cash kitty, your income's doubled, yeah. you know, and you're not producing. So where's the impulse for the asset rich to cut their spending? There's no impulse. There's yeah. none. And at the same time, our so, like, so we are in a GDP recession, uh, a, a per capita recession, right? Uh, or are we not yet? But we're in decline. Yeah. Yeah, we're in a recession 
per capita. Yeah, I think Australia would be. I, 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 yeah, I'd have to double check whether the last two quarters, but it's around there. I think yeah. we have to check the numbers. But basically, my understanding of it is the only thing stopping us going into recession is immigration, which then is also supporting asset prices, particularly house prices, which is like the most common major asset. So where's the impulse for the inflation to end going to come from? I don't know. Like what we're going to see and what we are seeing is eroding standards of living. And how does one protect against that? And honestly, my head swims because this is a new environment for us. I actually need to go back and reread the Buffett letters from the inflationary period and maybe try and find other content from that time to see what was working on a more zoomed in micro level. In high levels of inflation, you have a, actually have a strategy where borrowing money to buy the hard asset is like smart. So for example, Andrew's Bitcoin. Yolo I was, waiting, was you waiting for it? <laughs> Another thing you could do. I'm just throwing things out there. It's like, Andrew what are the- started borrowing money to buy the hard asset? Yeah, Don't do like, that. I don't suggest anything. <laughs> this is entertainment podcast zero advice given do not do this do not all characters on this podcast are (laughs) fictional fictional. (laughs) yeah so anyway what are the assets and obviously if our plan is just to like open the immigration a lot yeah then call me crazy but should i just even though i don't need to just borrow money to like buy an apartment and then so i've been searching high and low it's very difficult to actually find any investment properties that will rental yield anywhere near enough to be cash flow positive. You had Andrew at Bitcoin, you lost him at buy a rental property. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, but realistically, it's possible though, right? Anyway, I, I'm not, so I don't think I'm going to do that because I can't make the numbers work. But like, well, so, but what is the asset? Because the point is, in an inflationary environment, if wages and the currency is going down, wages, etc., are going up, you know, what's the asset you buy with borrowed money, and then your debt sort of gradually gets inflated away, but it's it's keeping up with inflation. Like, I don't really know the answer to that, but there's probably some really unique assets out there that do and have a yield work. And have a yield too. Anyway. Yeah, they have a good yield. Like, I don't. That's why. <laughs> business is interesting here as well right like if you've got this sort of like money making system that's a business and there are some that can go up sort of more and less naturally what you're effectively talking about is shorting the dollar right you see something that's losing purchasing power so i want to borrow as much of that because i'll be paying it back in with much i'm not actually going to do this by the way anyone so don't like this is just thought bubble stuff i don't have it in me anymore to like borrow money to invest that's a young man's game (laughs) (laughs) no i think it makes sense i think it absolutely i think it absolutely Absolutely makes sense. If you've got a bearish view on inflation and purchasing power, then borrowing that, as long as you do it against an asset where you can't be marginal. Well, you could do it against, but basically the only real thing to do it is property, right? Because that's Mm -hmm. what you can easily get relatively low cost funding. The proviso is you can sustain the repayments because you never are forced to sell a B. Well, I'd want to do, I don't want to do negative geared stuff. It just goes against my vibe. Yeah, I mean, of course, because you're an idiot if you're negatively geared. Sorry, I'm putting it out there. It's the dumbest thing in the world. (laughs) And and it's especially dumb now. Just because it worked for the last 10 years doesn't mean it's going to definitely. How do people not get wrecked if they're neg- ah? It's so crazy. They get every. They're getting bailed out by immigration. Yeah. That's what it is, right? It's like just in that setup where interest rates have shot up, all these people might should need to have to pan- panic sell. But it's like an orderly market because they're like, "Come on in, guys! <laughs> like, buy an apartment on your way in, please." Yeah, that's such well, a big question. Let's wrap it there because it's a big, it's yeah. a big question. But yeah, no, I think that's a good overview, Claude, and uh, yeah, some, something that'll keep coming up in future weeks, I'm sure. Do you have any other closing thoughts, Andrew? Or should we wrap it, wrap it there? No, I have so many thoughts, but let's wrap yeah. it. Yeah. Right. yeah. I feel like we didn't get any clarity here, but at least we, we talked about what we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. Hell know what you're doing, right? <laughs> you one of those hooks that come around like when someone's on stage to like close the show. We need a band to play you off before you start on Bitcoin. No. All right. Thanks, everyone, very much for listening. You can us up on Twitter at Baby Giants Pod. Yeah, until next time, thanks very much. Thanks, guys. See you, everybody.